It is such a joy to my life to be able to spend this afternoon with you in praise and worship to God. And I thank all of you for, for providing the good meal that we had. I wish we could have Sunday afternoon crowds where I preach like this. We try, but when our folks get through eating, they scatter like a covey of birds. But my land, I'll be anxious to tell them when I get home tonight what I saw here today. Such a joy to be with you. Gary Wilder is one of our graduates from the School of Preaching. Gary also preaches up in the Red Boiling Springs area. And he helps us in our library with the School of Preaching. And uh, by the grace of God, I recently wrote a book, Commentary on Revelation, called A Realistic View of Revelation. And Gary proved it for me for which I am profoundly grateful. And when I think about the opportunities that God has given me uh, working with men like Gary and in the School of Preaching, I know it's been a blessing to my life. And the greatest compliment to the School of Preaching are folks like Gary Wilder that are out there serving the Lord and doing a great job. This lesson this afternoon is for any of you that were once enslaved that have been set free. This lesson is for any of you that may now be bound in slavery and need to be set free. We have been reminded so many times the last few days of three young ladies in Cleveland, Ohio that have been held in slavery for a number of years. Now just suppose if you have a daughter, I have two daughters, just suppose one of those had been your daughter. They were somebody's daughter. It's unreal to think that a subhuman type person could treat human beings the way those young ladies evidently have been treated. To be bound by chains and ropes and abused the way that they obviously have been. Well, there might, might be a slavery that's even worse than that. When I think about the people that the devil has bound with chains of ignorance and ropes of sinful pleasure, I think about people that even have the horrible potential of being enslaved when they are snatched into eternity and suffer the same fate of the devil in an eternal hell. I mean, what we are hearing on the news is nothing short of tragic. But for people to be bound by Satan has the potential of an eternal tragedy. And that is not what God wants. God wants people to live in freedom. It's, it's within us the desire to be free and, and not be bound as many people are today bound. One of the ironies of the day, in this land of the free, it's called, millions of people are enslaved. Millions of people enslaved to alcohol, literally millions. Millions of people enslaved to lust of the internet. Millions of people enslaved to materialism. On and on it goes. 
I say it's ironic that here in a free land, so many people are in slavery. The scripture talks about slavery and freedom. I want to take you to Romans 6, one of the great chapters in your New Testament. Romans chapter 6. Now, some of this information, like I said, is for those of us who've been set free. But I think about something the Apostle Peter said in his second epistle. I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. So for many of us, it's just reminding us of how blessed we are to have been set free from Satan's bondage and captivity. And if there are those in this audience, or who may listen to this later, who are still bound by Satan, the good news is the Lord can set you free. So in this great chapter, Paul is reminding these folks of what happened when they were liberated. So you start up in verse 1, he says, uh, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Please listen to his answer. God forbid... How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should no longer serve sin or literally be enslaved to sin. And there you have it. That was the time they were liberated from sin's domination, sin's control over their lives, Satan destroying them spiritually, Satan binding their spirits and souls, and unfortunately, Many of them didn't even realize what was happening to them. But you're going down in this chapter, and he's going to say, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, verse 12. Now, a reign is something that a king or a queen would do, a person in control. There is the possibility of sin controlling us, reigning in our mortal bodies, ruling us. And, and that's why he has the, the admonition, don't let it happen to you. Don't let sin control you. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And then he comes on down to that scripture that was read to us. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then, now watch this word, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Now let's just key on this idea of a choice that we have to be a slave or to be free. Now evidently these three young women did not have a choice. They were denied that. But you and I have a choice to be free people or to live in bondage and slavery. Now, I want us to think first of all about that reality of choice. Because today, evidently, there are some folks who do not think you have choice. We live in a time when people think because of biological determinism 
They don't have choice. They, in other words, have been supposedly programmed by heredity, by genetics, and so they don't have any choice. And it's interesting how people try to excuse themselves in their slavery with a biological determinism. I was just born like that. You know, that, that's one of the lines of the people that have chosen what they call a lifestyle that's in opposition to the will of God. I mean, it's really not my, my problem. I was just born like that. Or, or here's a person, you know, I, I was born an alcoholic. I, I, mean, I have a predisposition for that. It's, it's a biological determinism that's controlling me. That flies straight in the face of the teaching of Scripture that we are people of choice. Way back to the days of Joshua, right before Joshua left this earth, he was talking to the Israelites whom he had led after Moses' death, and he said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods which our fathers served on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. It's a choice that you make. And choice is written all through the New Testament Scripture. Every time in the New Testament you read the Lord's command to repent, implicit in that is the power to choose. I mean, Satan doesn't so have our minds shackled that there is no possibility of turning away from that. Now, there's another type of determinism. I call it theological determinism. It was invented, so far as I can tell, by one of the great men of old, Augustine, many times called St. Augustine. And then what he had asserted was accepted by John Calvin many years later and popularized. Calvin was a brilliant lawyer, and so he bought into Augustine's theories and theologies, and he made it popular. And one of them was basically that God has chosen you personally and individually. Either that you are chosen for heaven or you are chosen for hell. And there's no decision on your part. God made the decision. And I'll just quote it from one of the creeds that God predestined men and angels to be saved and the number is so fixed that it can neither be increased nor diminished. Does that sound like much freedom to you? It was very interesting to me to trace where Augustine got this. He had been a teacher of Roman and Greek rhetoric, and uh, Greeks were really indoctrinated in the philosophy of determinism, and so Augustine somewhat baptized it and brought it over into the realm of religion, and John Calvin popularized it, and it's still a popular idea in America right now. So what does that do? with this idea of, uh, you know, I can choose liberation by Jesus Christ setting me free from sin's domination, setting me free from the devil's control of my life, or I can't. Well, Romans 6 says you've got a choice here. And don't you remember he said the time that you were indeed a servant or literally a slave? You, some, like the New King James translates a lot of this, slave. You were a slave, but now you've been set free. But you had the choice. You had a choice of either being a servant or a slave of ungodliness and unrighteousness, or you had a choice of being set free. How many people do not realize where they are spiritually? They do not realize that they are as much bound by the devil as those young ladies were in control of that 
subhuman creature, but they are. And I'll promise you something. There will be probably millions of Americans who will keep watching the replay of that news and say, that is such a terrible thing to keep those young women in slavery like that. And it is a terrible thing. And they will probably never realize, but you know, I'm enslaved myself. The devil has me enslaved. I I'm under his control. They probably will never realize it. I hope and pray that the gospel can get to them, the good news. You don't have to let the devil keep controlling your life and your destiny. I mean, the Lord can set you free. Didn't Jesus say in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? Free. Now, ironically, those very people, his Jewish brethren, they seemed to kind of resent that. And they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. And in essence, why are you talking to us about being set free? Now, if they had remembered their history, they surely would have never made such an assertion. They must have forgotten the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity and the Medo-Persian captivity and ironically at the very time, the Roman captivity. And yet they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. Well, Jesus in essence said, I'm gonna to talk to you about a bondage that's far more serious and severe than political bondage. He that commits sin is the bondservant of sin. Now the word commit is a very crucial word in that statement from the Lord. You're talking about a person that persists in a sinful life, a person that's under the control. In other words, sin is reigning in that person's mortal body and his, his or her life. Brethren sometimes have a real difficulty understanding the difference in their weakness and sin and sin controlling them. And for that reason, evidently, uh, too many of our brethren have the idea of, well, you know, I'm not sure I could ever be saved in heaven. I'm not, I'm not worthy to go to heaven. Who is worthy to go to heaven? I'm not depending on my own righteousness to get me into heaven. I'm depending on being obedient to the Lord and doing right. But I don't read in the Bible where the Lord said, be sinlessly perfect and I'll give you a crown of life. I do read in the Bible where he said, be thou faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. So living the Christian life is a struggle. It's a battle to keep sin from controlling us or reigning in our mortal bodies. I talked about people that were enslaved, for example, to the internet pornography. I'm just basing that on what I'm reading. I don't go to those sites, don't intend to, but evidently there are a lot of people that go there, men and women, and, and they get hooked on that kind of filth and trash, and it controls them. But there is a possibility of living a Christian life and being kept clean by the blood of the Son of God when we keep a sensitive conscience and a penitent heart and throw our souls upon the mercy of God. I find it very, very interesting that the Apostle Peter will say in 1 Peter 1 and 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end for, now watch this one, the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the very man who at the Jerusalem gathering, the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15, after there'd been dispute about the condition of Gentile Christians, was it necessary for these Gentile Christians to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? There were some among the Pharisees who evidently had become Christians, but Phariseeism hadn't come out of them. 
And so on that occasion, according to the inspired historian Luke in Acts 15, verse 6, they said on that occasion, it's necessary. They're going to have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Well, now, the Holy Spirit is revealing the truth about that matter, and the apostle Peter spoke on that occasion. He said, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that by my mouth the Gentile should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the heart, put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now he's obviously talking about eternal salvation. Now, now look at the man making that statement. A man who had been personally associated with Jesus Christ a man that had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, a man that could speak in tongues, languages that other people could understand from different areas, a man who had resurrected people from the dead. He certainly resurrected Sister Dorcas from the dead, didn't he? A man who could miraculously heal, at least God through him, could miraculously heal people. What about the man there in Acts 3 that had been laid at the beautiful gate of the temple? And when Peter and John started in, the man wanted them to give him some alms. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately the man's ankle bones received strength and he could leap and praise God. Peter, what's the proof of your salvation? What's the proof of my salvation? I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, man. I can speak in tongues. I can heal miraculously. I can even raise from the dead. And you ask me, what's the proof of my salvation? Well, what is it? We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we should be saved even as they. You know, he's right where you are and right where I am so far as his own Christian life is concerned. And so he said, now you look for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how Jude concluded that little book right down there at the end of that little book. He said, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for what? The mercy of the Lord to eternal life. I was sitting by the bedside of a gospel preacher who was quite ill and uh, he, he was concerned about the possibility of his eternal salvation. I don't know if I've been good enough. Well, I reminded him of two things. I reminded him of 1 Peter 1.13 and the little book of Jude. I said, brother, I'm looking for the grace of the Lord and for his mercy. I'm depending on him to be the author of my salvation. I'm not the author of my salvation. He is the author of my salvation, and I'm depending upon him. I'm depending on his blood to keep me clean from sin, and I'm depending on his mercy and grace to open for me the door of heaven. So when I think about this idea of a, of a person having to be enslaved to sin, a child of God that lets sin start reigning in their mortal body, controlling them again, it's a choice. It's a choice. I want to move from that quickly over to another area. He said, uh, when you made your choice to be a slave or a servant, of sin. What you really chose was death. Know you not that to whom you, you yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death. If you will visualize the, a humongous cemetery, I mean an enormous cemetery, you've got the world in mind. The world is dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Not dead biologically, dead spiritually. It's like, uh, you know, you, you think about Ephesians 2 when Paul 
wrote that great epistle, one of the profound letters of the New Testament. It's kind of like one of our teachers told me not long ago. He'd been studying very carefully Ephesians. He said, I believe Ephesians is more profound than Romans. Either, either book is profound. came from the Holy Spirit of God. Paul prayed a prayer for the church at Ephesus and consequently for this church or any congregation that will internalize it. He prayed, and I, I love the imagery in verse 18 of chapter 1, that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us that believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand above the heavenlies or heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and dominion and might, and every name that is named, not only in this world but in that which is to come, and put all things under his feet and gave him to be head of all, over all things, the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all, and you hath he quickened. I just omitted the chapter division. See, it's a continuation. God's power had been manifested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from physical death. God's power had been demonstrated in the exaltation of the Son of God to the right hand of the majesty on high. And God put Jesus Christ in a position where he is head over his church. He is the head of it. He's in control of it. And then he immediately said, And you hath he made alive or quickened, who were what? Dead in trespasses and in sins. He said, Where in time past you walked? According to the course of this world. Now, if you look at that phrase, the course of this world, you're going to find the two words that are prominently used in the New Testament to translate this idea of world. That first one, the course, translates a word which you would find in Romans 12 when Paul said, be not conformed to this world. If your Bible has a marginal reference, it'll say age. The age of this cosmos, that mass of mankind separated from God by sin and dominated by the devil. He said, that's where you were. You were in this age of that mass of humanity separated from God. You were dead in trespasses and in sins. I wonder how many people understand that they are a walking death if they are under the control of the devil. Oh, they have a biological life. But you remember what Jesus said in response to one of the temptations of the devil? Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone. Oh, you can have a biological existence by bread alone, but you won't be living. You will be simply existing. And Jesus used another word over in the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 14, when he talked about people that would receive the word and then they became unfaithful. The word would be choked out by the riches and cares and pleasures of this life. Now that word Jesus used there in Luke 8, 14, is not the word he used in Matthew 4, 4. If you looked at that word in Luke 8, 14 in the original, you'd see where we got our word biology. But over here in Matthew 4, he used a word for life, which has far more to it than simply a biological existence. You're talking about a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life of joy, a life of hope, I mean, it's all bound up in real life that Jesus came to give. You know, John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Imagine people choosing death 
instead of life. Walking around a living death. You remember when the prodigal son came home, what the father said about his boy? He said, my son was what? Dead, but is alive. He was dead. What's that dead boy doing? Oh, he was off in a foreign country. He's having a great time, he thought. While he had the financial resources to keep his friends going, he, he was a great guy. But his resources ran out, and so did his friends. And where did he end up? Feeding hogs, a Jewish boy feeding hogs of all the incredible things. And so hungry, he would have eaten the hog food. Now, I fed hogs when I was a boy. I was never that hungry. I mean, I'd walk into a pen of hogs barefooted with two five-gallon cans of, they call it garbage today. That's not what we call it. We call it slop. I'd walk in with two five-gallon cans of that. Those hogs would attack me, step on my bare feet, test my religion and everything else. But I never was so hungry. I thought, get back, boys. I'm going to eat this food myself. But this Jewish boy, that's how hungry he was. And nobody came to him. Let me tell you something about people that are walking a living death. There's something just not right. They'll try this and they'll try that to find real meaning and purpose. Like the French philosopher, mathematician Pascal once said, every human being has a God hole in the heart. Why is that? Go back to Genesis 1, you got your answer. God made us. Let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. And I don't care what you, you can try pleasure, you can try sports, you can try money, you can try position and power, you can try it all. It's already happened. Solomon tried it. He thought, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to find real meaning for my life in pleasure. What did he conclude? It's like running after the wind. Oh, I'm going to find my life in material things. He was a very, very wealthy man. If he married a woman from another country and she became homesick for the hanging gardens of Babylon, he'd say, don't worry about it, honey. I built you some just like those. And he didn't even have to use an American Express card to do it. He could just have them built. But you know what his conclusion was with all that material substance? He said, I'm going to die one of these days, and then what's going to happen to it? I read in an old book one time, we brought nothing into this world, and it's for certain we'll carry nothing out. You know, that's about the way it is. How much you plan to take with you? You know, one thing I admire about Bill Gates, he realizes I'm not going to take it with me, and so he's trying to give it away. Amen. I kind of admire that, don't you? When I think about a man I, I heard about recently, in fact, they had a news about this fellow. He was a billionaire, and he's been giving his money away. He didn't find it over there. Now, I hope somebody can get to that fellow who lives in California with the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell him, you won't ever find it until you find it in a right relationship with the Son of the living God. Then you will find meaning, real meaning for your life. And plus that, you will have hope even when this brief sojourn on earth shall have faded into the reality of eternity. You will go into eternity with hope in your heart and strength in your soul. Because you will have lived, and you have had a foretaste of living forever. You know, God can talk to his people as if eternal life were already a possession, because it's God's promise. Pick up a passage like 1 John 5. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Well, wait, wait, wait. John, you had said back in chapter 225, this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. Why do you say it's a promise and then say you have it? Because God's promise is so sure and so real that you can talk about things that God has promised as if you already had them. It's kind of like the way Isaiah wrote about the death of Christ in Isaiah 53. If you'll read Isaiah 53, that great messianic prophecy, you'll find him using at times past sense. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We did esteem him stricken. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Why in the world, Isaiah, would you use the past sense of something over 700 years down the stream of time? Because this is Almighty God saying this is what will happen. And so when God promises me eternal life, that is as sure as if I already had it. Life. I mean, God created us to live. And the devil brought death. And so when I think about people choosing to be in service of the devil, to be his slaves, to be bound by his chains of ignorance and his ropes of a superficial pleasure and having to die, walking around dead in trespasses and in sins, when they could be alive. The Lord had made those saints at Ephesus come alive. They'd heard a great, he calls it back in chapter 113, the gospel of your salvation. They'd heard good news that God loved them, that Jesus died for them, that they could be forgiven of all their sins, that their consciences could be cleansed from the guilt of sin, that their lives could be cleansed from the shame of sin, and they could be set free to become what God created people to be. Ah, what do you choose? Life or death? Now, brothers and sisters, I would assume that most of us here right today have chosen life. Don't ever underestimate the blessing God has brought to you. Don't ever underestimate how privileged you are to live as a free man or woman in Jesus Christ. Now, I use that illustration. Can you imagine being in the kind of slavery that those young women were in? the abuse that they were having to take, and they're captives. It's hard to imagine it. It's kind of like a person, you know, enslaved to the devil and not realizing really what's happening to them. It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Now, quickly in the third place, he said, you chose something else. You were the slaves or servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine which was delivered you. We've already seen they had been baptized into a very likeness of the Lord's death. And as surely as he had been resurrected from the dead, they had been resurrected from spiritual death. To what? Newness of life. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. You had been dead in trespasses and in sins. Now you live. And in that choice, you became a servant of righteousness. God made you righteous through his son. That's in the gospel. That, you know, Romans 1, 16, 17, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. That's the way God makes us righteous in his son, by his son, by taking the blood of Christ as adequate payment for our sins, letting us identify with his son, wearing the very name Christian, 
identifying us with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and to do right. Made right to do right. Wouldn't you love to live in a world where everybody wanted to do right? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Just everybody wanted to do right. Ah, you say, well, you're talking about utopia on earth. I guess so. A lot of folks don't want to do right. They, they evidently find pleasure in doing wrong and being rebels. You know, young folks sometimes go through kind of a rebellious stage. And uh, sometimes it takes some a little longer to get out of it than others. And then they look back, and it's kind of like Paul said in the latter part of this chapter. What fruit had you then of those things whereof you are now ashamed have you ever known folks that would make a similar statement? I personally have known people that would make a similar statement. I remember in a little town where I, while I was still in school at Lipscomb, but I was preaching on the weekends down a little place in Giles County called Minor Hill. And we had, as a lot of little towns have, we had a town drunk. And uh, so had an opportunity to talk to him and finally uh, he obeyed the gospel. I gave him about six months. Then one Sunday I called him aside after service and I said, Brother Arthur, I want to ask you a question. I want you to level with me. How does your life now compare to what it was when you were a drunk? He said, well, there's no comparison. No comparison. I just regret I waited too long or so long. Talked to a man in West Tennessee with tears in his eyes. He said, the sad situation for me is I wasted so much of my life in sin. See, what fruit did you have in those things whereof you are now ashamed? You're going to let the devil keep controlling your life when the Lord wants to set you free to do right and to appreciate right doing? It's a choice. But it's the most important choice that an individual ever makes in this life. Because in choosing freedom in Christ, I choose life with an eternal dimension to it. And letting the devil continue to control my life means I choose death with the horrible potential of eternal, the second death. And you know death means separation. Physical death, the body without the spirit is dead, James 2.26. Spiritual death is when I'm separated from God. Hell is being eternally separated from God. Now, can you imagine this? Being eternally separated from the mercy of God, from the love of God, from the grace of God, from the goodness of God, and condemned in a way there will never be one tiny ray of hope ever. I mean, it's forever. Death, separated from God. And the good people of all times. You know, as I said this morning, one reason I'm grateful to be here, I, I've never been with you folks before. I just want to get to know better the people I expect to live in heaven with forever. Amen. I'd hate to think that my eternal associates are going to be the Hitlers. And this, I won't even call the name of this subhuman being in Cleveland. Folks like that. The Joseph Stalins, these murderers, rapists, 
all that crowd, I'd hate to think I'm going to have to put up with that crowd forever and ever when I could be with God's people singing praise, glorifying God, knowing the joy of heaven, knowing the satisfaction of the deepest longing of my soul, and knowing it will never, ever end. That the joy and the peace and the life will never, ever end. Isn't that what you want? So I don't know your spiritual state, but if there's anyone here this afternoon that's still being bound by the devil, I've got good news for you. The Lord will set you free. If you'll come to him with genuine faith in your heart and a penitent mind, change your mind about your former life and the one you will live in glory to God in the future. You could sweeten your lips with the loving name of the precious Savior who loved you and died for you. And Randy could baptize you into Christ where you would become a child of God, known and owned in heaven, and brother, bound for the promised land. Our sister, going to a land fairer than day for which we sigh and for which we pray. Oh, thanks be to God for his abundant love and his amazing grace and the sacrifice of his son that you and I might live now and live forever and forever. Thank you for your good attention. I started to open this service by saying, I don't know if I should bid you good afternoon or good night. Well, one reason God has let me live this long is to understand some things I didn't understand when I was a frying-sized preacher. You know, we'd have afternoon services, and some of the older folks would kind of get sleepy. I'd think, man, you know, here we are in a religious service. Now I understand it. God let me live long enough. Say, now, Tom, you do understand, don't you? Yes, I really do. And I want to thank all of you. I didn't see anybody that uh, was trusting me so. You said, it's in your hands. I'm, I'm going to take me a nap. God bless you. Look forward to being with you tomorrow night, God willing, and the rest of the services of this meeting. Uh, God bless you for the good way you've listened to this part of his word. It sure makes what I'm trying to do a joy when you have folks that listen the way you do. Now, Brother Belch has us a song we're going to sing. We won't do this as a tradition. We'll do it as an exhortation. We'll take our voices and our hearts and try to reach to you and say, there's freedom in Christ. If you're choosing the chains of the devil, there's freedom for you. If you'll come to our Savior, he'll set you free. If you need to come home because once he set you free and the devil kept deceiving and pulling and tugging until you surrendered to him, you can come home with a penitent mind, throw your soul on the mercy of a gracious God in fervent prayer, know an abundant pardon, and go back to live again, not in death, but in the realm of life. That's why we sing to encourage you to respond if you need to, to the Lord's invitation. Let us sing.